Welcome to a very special edition of the Tech UK podcast, where we chat to tech female heads of policy within our membership on International Women's Day. I'm Numi Patel, Policy Manager for Skills, Talent and Diversity at Tech UK. And I'm Lulu Fremont, Head of Digital Regulation. We're going to look at how we can break the bias, the theme of the day, and about the wider representation in the industry and what more needs to be done to support inclusivity. We are joined by Becky Foreman, UK Corporate Affairs Director of Microsoft. Rebecca Simpson, UK Head of Policy Meta. Katie Minshaw, Head of UK Public Policy Twitter. And Liz Cantor, Director of Government Relations and Public Policy at TikTok. Focusing on three key questions, we wanted to come together with some real experts in tech, some real leaders in tech, to really try and understand from from personal experience, you know, how has inclusivity changed over time? Do you think we need to do more? And and what is the role of International Women's Day? And we want to hear from personal experiences, you know, how has it been working as women in tech? And Becky, if we, we maybe start with you, you know, how do you think inclusivity has really changed over time or, or has it not? Um, I think I think it has changed over time. Um, I think it's been something that's been broader than just um, inclusivity in terms of gender, but it's been about inclusivity in terms of um, ethnic background and um, sexuality and uh, as well as gender and and in the sort of broadest possible sense and I think um, um, many organizations are just realizing that having a diversity of views around the table um, is really really helpful and um, enables um, companies to understand their customers better to understand all of their stakeholders better and so I think there's a lot to be gained um, for every organisation in um, in really embracing diversity and inclusivity. And I've definitely seen that in the time that I've been working in the tech sector. And I guess, is there any sort of personal experience that, and change which you've been through throughout your career to, to really sort of see that, that inclusivity come to life? I think one thing um, that demonstrates, um, demonstrates it really well is um, when I was working um, at Ofcom, so that would have been um, probably about 15 years ago. So I um, I went to work in Ofcom after I um, had been working in Brussels in the European Parliament um, before I came to Microsoft. And I um, went to a conference on spectrum technology um, on behalf of Ofcom. And it was really a sort of learning experience for me. I was there to learn about spectrum. And the only other, it was an audience of probably a hundred people. And the only other women in the whole room were the lady who was taking the microphone around for the Q&A and the lady who was serving the tea and coffee for the breaks. And I think that's probably, you know, the worst example of of sort of lack of diversity that I've seen in the tech sector. Um, but I think that probably wouldn't happen now. And I know that many organisations make a huge effort to ensure that um, there is diversity of 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 individuals on panels, for example. And so you don't end up with a panel that's that's entirely men. It's really interesting that you mentioned that, Becky, because we've, you know, I've been the girl that hands around the mic and I think uh, we've all been that way, one way or another. Katie, can I ask you how inclusivity has changed over time? I think the biggest change over my career has been the prioritisation of inclusivity, that progress requires a really sustained corporate shift. 
which I think you're starting to see in parts of the sector that have got it right, although unfortunately not everywhere. So at Twitter, where I work, um, workforce targets have been communicated to the company, communicated publicly. By 2025, when you look at gender specifically, 50% of the workforce will be women. And on a quarterly basis, the company share how we're tracking against those targets. I think the most recent data showed the workforce was currently about 45% female and 40% in leadership positions. Um, but I think what's happened concurrent to that is also uh, a real encouragement to bring your whole self to work, which is very different from when I first um, had my first job. So things like regular inclusion and diversity training, active inclusion networks are really fundamental to this. You know, as a gay woman, it's great that there are really active LGBTQ plus and women's networks at Twitter. What I think is even better is how we're all encouraged to join, attend, participate in other inclusion networks as well, which is great for educating employees and really actively fostering allyship. And I guess, Katie, have you seen a shift over your career to kind of get to that point? Or, or have you felt that it's always quite been quite sort of accepting and inclusive? I think it's become more proactive uh, that, you know, the, the workplaces I've worked at, I've been fortunate to, to always um, uh, kind of feel able to be myself. But I think what's different now in workplaces that have got it right is a real push encouraging you to be open to talk about your identity, to really engage with the inequalities and the discrimination that other people face. I love that kind of bring your whole self to work concept that I think we should all aspire to. Um, Rebecca, it would be, would be great to get your perspectives and your sort of personal experiences around inclusivity in the workplace. I, I think over the course of my career, like, and I spent most of my career in the civil service and obviously the last few years working at, at Meta, um, is, is that the kind of, it's, I think it started out, it felt like inclusivity was like a kind of tick checkboxed exercise where everyone did a bit of unconscious bias training and, and you maybe make sure you had a female candidate in your final six for a job or something. And it was a bit of a kind of checklist. And I think what's happened now is two things. One is people really valuing the strength that diversity can bring, like especially I think in tech companies when you are building products for billions of people, social media companies, particularly you are hosting a global conversation that includes every community out there. And actually the more diverse we are, on the inside of these companies as you try and figure out how to you know moderate those conversations and what's an acceptable thing to say what isn't who's being penalized and who isn't and so on i think diversity is actually now seen as much more of a strength and diverse perspectives than a kind of oh well i suppose we ought to have a woman on this board or something like that so that's been a really big shift over time the other one i would say is that um, I now feel, and I think this is a little bit of a privileged tech position, I, I don't think this is university truth, that a lot of the push for diversity and inclusion now comes from the bottom rather than the top. You see a lot of, there's a lot of talk around kind of activist employees, and certainly that is very true. We are that people in companies like ours are pushing for 
difficult conversations about racism, homophobia, female empowerment, all these other big societal issues. And they want to work for companies who are really stepping up and it's part of how they perceive, are you a good company to work for or are you not? And they are driving that. We're certainly a little bit like Katie said, when I first started, it, it, this was all top down. This was mainly a group of uh, very well-established, let's be honest, white men in, in these senior roles, sort of feeling like they were supposed to sort of make a nod to this and that, and it that was about it. And you kind of, by and large, kept your head down and just took that. Now I feel it's all being driven the other way. And I think um, environmental and social issues are a big part of companies' offerings and what younger people are, are looking for. And I, I think that's a fantastic evolution of this debate. I think it's really fascinating, especially thinking about, you know, what is attractive in a company when it comes to sort of employment and young people looking for jobs. And I, I speak for Nimi and myself that definitely looking at, you know, who your role models are, who your sort of senior leaders are, like all you guys working in tech, it's really something that that drives us to have positivity around our opportunities uh, in the workplace. But Liz, any personal experiences that, that you've faced over your career around inclusivity? I began my career in, in Washington, D.C., and all of the senior people in the office were men, and you know, most politicians were men, and it was absolutely fine. No one questioned it. It was very kind of a very normal thing. Um, another anecdote um, going along with what Becky said, I remember when I first came over to the U.K., I went to a, an event with Lord Digby Jones back when he was, this is really aging me, but um, head of the CBI, and he said, and I was literally the only woman in the room, and he said, good evening, lady and gentlemen. And a ha ha ha, it was so funny. Nowadays, there would have been a press article, there would have been outrage, there would have been, but back then I actually also thought it was kind of funny and didn't really question it. But I would be out outraged now if that kind of thing happened. I think what colleagues, you know, others have said is, is this kind of, from the, I hate to say that even the word bottom up, but this activism from the whole range of employee levels. And that's something that I think is certainly um, uh, changed over the years and, and over my career. And then they were also seeing initiatives like the 30% Club, these initiatives that we are creating for women by women to try and get more women in leadership positions on boards, things like that. Um, and then as others have talked about ERGs or employee resource groups, I mean, TikTok, we have a women's group, we have a pride group, we have a Jewish group, we have a black group, we have very, all these different groups. And as someone else said, it's not, you have, you have to be in that particular group to be an ally. It's open to everyone, but it's helping give people a voice. And I think those are, those are really, really powerful. So um, in terms of the shift, it's been a dramatic shift in my career, both working in, in the US and in the UK. Um, and then of course, I also, on this whole notion of mannels, just absolutely not acceptable. Um, and that is something that's, that's, that's great. And then the fact that, there, that we, it, we're so unique even in our, our industry, the fact that we have, that not all of us are here, but so many women in senior leadership positions in government relations for tech companies in, in the UK, and that might be a pretty rare thing, but I thought it was, um, I was, I never thought of it until you sent out the message to say, look at all these female, great female leaders. So I think we're in a lucky boat with all of us being in these positions. I think a couple of people have referred to allyship um, in what they've said, and that's, I think, so important. It's so important that um, that individuals who maybe aren't in a particular minority group are allies and do consider their own um, position. And I, I feel like that's one of the main ways in which we'll make progress in the area of diversity and inclusion. And, and you know, I have male colleagues who 
always ask as a matter of course when they're asked to speak on panels who the other people will be on the panel and whether there is um, gender diversity and who will refuse to speak on panels if they're going to be one of, of you know, just if it's just going to be men on panels. Um, the other thing I, I thought just as everybody was talking is that in many ways we're really lucky because we're working for companies which are very progressive in this area. And although there's still lots of work for all of our organisations to do, that we're working for organisations which are very thoughtful and have taken, you know, huge steps um, in these areas. And I notice often when I go to business events, particularly, um, you know, with when I'm speaking to people from smaller businesses, that that's not universal. And I think it's really easy, certainly for me, I sort of sometimes think I'm in this lovely kind of bubble working for a big company that's very progressive and very enlightened. And that's just not the case for many, many women, I think, who are working in tech companies. They're still encountering the kind of challenges that, you know, would have been challenges for us right at the very beginning of our careers and we just don't come up against anymore. Sure. So following on from this, are you able to recall a time in your career where you experienced allyship or where you were an ally yourself and what happened? For me, it's all about opportunity. When I look back at my own career, the moments that I kind of moved forward and not just as a woman, but also like I, I don't come from a very privileged background. I don't have a university education, you know, and especially when I was in working in cabinet office number 10, you know, you're around a lot of Oxford, Cambridge, very privileged people. And I did not come from that world. So being a woman was kind of additional layer of, of kind of disadvantage, I suppose. I don't want to use that word, but you understand what I mean in that environment. And and the, the men, frankly, who were allies to me in progressing my career were the ones who just gave me the opportunity, who said, you lead that project, you stand up and do that, you take that presentation, you do that thing. And I think opportunity is the kind of key to that mobility in all senses like I said people from different backgrounds people with different educations uh, people with different insights and, and different uh, a range of different diversities I, I have always erred towards like being an ally is just about be as practical as you can and like actually give those pe people the opportunity to lead and do that work and show what they can do I think the other one is exactly what we're doing today and I agree with Liz that like it's really inspiring that all of the the, the female leadership in, in these big tech companies in the UK, and I do think it's quite unique, is just to be the role model, just to stand there, be public, speak up and be visible to people so that they are sitting there going, oh, you can do that. You can get there. And I think there's there's been a lot more of that um, over the over recent decades. But I think it is incredibly important just to be a visible uh, and hopefully be quite inspiring to people who are trying to follow. Thanks. That point about visibility is is so important. Liz, have you found that to also be the case? I, mean, I think I was. I mean, I'm equally like um, Rebecca. I, I came from a background with with my single mother. I have three sisters. She raised us. She worked two jobs. I mean, my work ethic. I know exactly where it came from because that was what I was modeling. And you know, I had a strong female leader in my life. And um, and I still do, thankfully. Um, and um, I guess from my perspective, when I think about colleagues at TikTok, we've gotten a lot of you know really young people at TikTok, not really young, obviously they're working age and all, but you know, young people who are just starting out in their career. And um, not to toot my own horn, but one of the things that has come back is to say that I treat everyone the same at the company. And I, I don't do that intentionally, just like a behavior that is in the part of, of me that I, maybe I've learned over the years to, I'm not very hierarchical and those kind of things. And, I think one of the challenges here, even on allyship, is how do we teach that? How do you teach people to 
to naturally try and want to foster and mentor people. And we all of our companies will have mentor programs. We all probably are mentors to other people at our companies. I am a mentor to someone. And um, it's one of those things that how can we, and I know it's kind of going to the third question, but how can we teach that behavior of the allyship, of the treating people the same and putting yourself in their shoes and remembering people say, oh, I'm so thank you, they're so thankful for your time. I'm going, What's, I'm happy to talk to you, but you forget that there's, you know, when you're just starting out in your career, building your confidence and reaching out to someone who might be more senior, for all of us, we would do it no problem. But I take for granted when someone is so thankful for my time, it's like, of course I'd, I'd help you and give you my time. And so it's kind of a rambling way of saying, how do we teach that behavior of people to not only be allies, but to seek out mentors and to seek out that kind of support within a company. Um, and then going back to the kind of learned behavior, that's another thing, this idea of unconscious bias. I don't, I, I probably have unconscious bias that I'm not aware of. I, I don't think I have too many of them, but I'm also open to always learning and getting rid of those biases. But just, I guess I'm just kind of, I do feel passionate about breaking down the barriers to people that are in our more senior positions and those that are just beginning in their careers and trying to even be an ally in that way, as well as being an ally across different, you know, different groups of people as well. I hope that makes sense. I just wanted to to kind of pick up on that, Liz. I think it's, you could not have explained it better, the importance of having sort of senior leaders that are people that you can aspire to, you can talk to, and also people that will understand you, the members that we work with, it's very encouraging to sort of see so many female leaders at, at these global companies, but also internally to sort of think about the the sort of senior management. And it's it seems like a very sort of boring point, but thinking about who is making the decisions. And I think that ensuring that females are within that space and that, that women are there that understand the, the potential experiences that you might go through in your career as someone more junior is absolutely fundamental. So I just, just wanted to sort of raise that point and say that from lived experience it is so important to have those mentors and leaders I, I think Liz made some really good points about um about uh thinking kind of more inclusively and and always taking these opportunities to learn and grow you know I'm surrounded by male colleagues who have been really encouraged as we all have to think about how we're reacting when people um, speak or make statements you know are we having negative reactions um, because we have some type of unconscious bias and you know I think unconscious bias training has had a really terrible press and a number of sort of quite prominent individuals have been very derogatory and very rude about unconscious bias training I think when it's done well it can be really really helpful really positive and really encourage us all to to think about where we might have biases um, and I, I think the sort of what we've read in the media uh, about people sort of saying that it's a waste of time I think is really unfortunate because I think it's a really good way to encourage teams to work together more effectively. I think that's so interesting, Becky, because the theme for International Women's Day is actually all about breaking the bias. So keen to hear more about how we can do this and what organisations are doing. Rebecca, can I bring you in? Sure. Uh, one of the things I was going to add, it was kind of struck me besides what Liz said was, was fantastic. It was, um, I think, part, you know, your original question was about being an ally. And one of the um, moments that stayed with me the most, I think there was a a long time ago, there was a trend that if you wanted to be a kind of successful, empowered woman in the workplace, that you had to adopt lots of the behaviours of men. 
and you had to kind of you know adopt those kind of mannerisms and those behaviors and pretend and I you know I'm, I'm old I'm thinking about the 80s women with their big shoulder pads on you know marching around being a kind of like tough boss lady and one of the things I think is brilliant about being an ally and a role model and all the themes we're talking about now is that it's it, it you are positively encouraged to kind of uh not try and hide the fact that you're a woman and in fact embrace the kind of skills and abilities that women can have that are different uh to men can have for example and i, I don't think it's a coincidence that the directors of public policy and all these big companies are women necessarily because lots of public policy is about relationships and communication and being empathetic to the audience that you're doing understanding people's concerns about our companies and the conversations they want to have um and i one of the anecdotes that i would tell is that um uh, I had a one-to-one -one, uh, converse, uh, conversation with uh, Eliza Manningham-Buller, who was the first female head of MI5. So it doesn't get much more male-dominated than that. And it would have been so easy for her to kind of morph into that culture and become like adopt these very male traits. I'm, I'm obviously generalizing slightly, but, uh, and she didn't. And she actually went the other way and lent into the qualities that she could bring to the organization, even an organization like that as a woman. And so for example, she recognized that um, if you are in a relationship with someone who works for MI5, you're their partner or their children or their parents, that can be quite difficult because you're obviously not allowed to know a lot about what they're doing. They might disappear for periods of time. They're doing secret government spy things. And so she instigated a whole load of policies around recognizing the, the toll that that takes on people around the staff of MI5 and kind of did things that I think previous male leaders of that organization may have felt a bit uncomfortable. It was all a bit touchy-feely and a bit woolly, but she actually really embraced the fact that she was the first female leader and brought that as a strength and brought a lot of culture change and mindset change to the organization. And I think that is also the allyship that we can all show is to not try and train women who are following in our footsteps that the way to get ahead is to kind of bury your femaleness. It's in fact to embrace it and use it and, and champion it as a real strength in these kind of jobs. Yeah, that's a fascinating anecdote. I, I mean, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that, <laughs> that conversation. But Katie, do you want to come in? Yeah, I, I think as, as well as embracing your femaleness, um, something companies can do is consciously create opportunities for women in the workplace to network, meet uh, women in leadership courses. Because I think on the one hand, it really helps to have a network of women, um, both in a kind of professional development sense, hearing about jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what, what is also really key is sometimes something might happen to you at work and it might trouble you. It might be something you don't even think about. But by having a space with other women where you're encouraged to talk through those sorts of challenges, you might identify that there are shared issues. They might be related to your workplace. They might not be. But even just knowing there are other people who are dealing with it, who are going through it, can be a really important step, I think, in addressing some of these challenges, even systemic challenges, in just acknowledging that they exist. And it's not trust you or it's not um reflective of your performance at work it's a wider trend i've been taking lots of notes and i think that we've said two really powerful things here i think katie said you know we can bring our whole self to work 
Um, and then Rebecca just said, you know, don't bury our, our femaleness. And it makes me, I, this whole time we're talking, I'm thinking about Brene Brown, who is, you know, this amazing leader. And I literally have a quote on my board that says, and I think it's something that's so powerful for women in particular, don't shrink, don't puff up, stand on your sacred ground. And it's something I need to remind myself because I am, a, I have a strong personality. I, I can tend to, you know, I don't do it now, but maybe I can see, I see myself in younger people. Someone I worked with who's maybe 10, 15 years younger than me. I said, oh, I probably would have reacted like that then. But now I, I try to you know, not puff up, stand on my ground, but don't, you don't need to be aggressive to get your point across, I think is, is what I'm saying. And going to your question about what we're doing now is, the idea of Brene Brown and this whole di idea of bringing your whole self and it's okay to be vulnerable at work. I have, I've been really lucky with my, my bosses and my leaders and they have happen to have been men. You know, I just think my point on, on current, you know, the way that leaders are leaders now is it's not even, it's this, there's not as much hierarchy as there used to be. And women are promoted, tried you know, aggressively trying to promote women into the senior positions, but on the allyship, bringing sort of the allyship point in as well, I, I think with leaders now, it's okay for your leader to be your ally and be your champion and not just be your boss and instruct you on how to do things. And that removing hierarchy, I think, in organizations has been really, really helpful. And we're sort of obsessive about, about um, a flat organization at TikTok. But um, that's something I think that companies can do is sort of breaking down the barrier between a boss-employee relationship. Um, and then the other thing is just these more formal things that we've talked about before, like ERGs from different groups are something that companies can do. And I'm not sure whether or not I agree that, you know, CVs or, or sorry, not CVs, but job descriptions need to be rewritten so the language is more neutral. I mean, we all know, and I have fallen into this trap myself of not applying for certain roles. If I look at the job description, I only can do 60% of it. Why would I possibly apply when we know that the stereotype, of course, is that men would apply even if they can do can't even do the job um and that's something that's another thing that some of those innate characteristics that that women have we don't want to completely do away with them but some of those um things i love to be able to see how we can teach change i keep on going back to this notion of change changing behavior and with the idea of looking at a job spec and not applying for it can we ever get to the point where women don't i know that's a stereotype but don't do that I hate to even talk about stereotypes, but I think even speaking for myself, I know I've been guilty of that. I think it brought up some really interesting points about stereotypical behaviour and what we consider acceptable behaviour at work. I think over the pandemic, we've we've had a shift to kind of more compassionate leadership, more which is basically a very businessy word for just empathy in leadership, isn't it? And I was just wondering if if anyone had seen sort of instances throughout the pandemic or you know during during extreme parts of COVID where they have seen um, good leadership good examples of leadership or good examples of em empathetic leadership. I had one point on what Liz just said about not applying for jobs and women tending to hold themselves back in a way that men wouldn't like I was very struck uh, we had an international women's day event a couple of years ago when we could could do these things in person and uh there were lots of panels and I was sitting there next to a, a friend of mine that I'd invited to come along and almost every panel spent quite a lot of time talking about imposter syndrome and my friend was getting more and more angry and she was like why are we making this a women's issue why is it you don't hear men talk men have it men have imposter syndrome but they don't talk about it and they do it anyway 
And like the fact that we sit in these rooms, endlessly, endlessly talking, but now, of course, it's fine to talk about, but she, I, and it really struck me because I was like, yeah, oh God, she's right. You know, just because we are articulating this, there is this danger that we, somehow this magically becomes a female only issue that that you have imposter syndrome and that men don't have it and I instantly from that day forward kind of stopped talking about it because I didn't want that label to be attached so I was just yeah Liz's thing about and and like I said in one of my earlier comments a lot of what I do to be an ally to women who are kind of following us is is just to give them opportunity and say just like just do it just don't hesitate and wait constantly for the perfect moment or the perfect environment just do it uh, and you'll be amazed at, at what happens um your question about kind of empathetic uh during the pandemic i mean i think most tech firms i'll be interested in what the others say we had one of the easiest transitions in the pandemic we were all working virtually we were very used to doing everything on video very used to people uh, you know we, we're not based in a particular location we don't manufacture something in a, in a space um so we had those kind of jobs which were able to pivot to that sort of working relatively easily um, through the pandemic. But I think there's been a lot of recognition of how challenging it's been for people, uh, even in the privileged circumstances that we're all in, to work from home, especially if there are children in the house. And, you know, we've been given things like extra days leave and extra support for around childcare and uh, recognising that for lots of people uh, that has been very tough. As always, I have a bit of a bugbear that it, it orientates heavily towards people with children, a lot of this support, whereas lots of my team are in their 20s and in flat shares with four other people, all <coughs> excuse me, all working at the same kitchen table, and that is also very difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I think it has been empathetic. I think, I mean, an extraordinary revolution in how we all work and think about work and how we all think about coming back to the office. I don't know how the others companies are faring but at the moment there is definitely no strong rush uh that i'm seeing for people to all race back to their commutes and back to the office i, I feel like there's been a kind of revolution of work almost overnight as a result of the pandemic and we're all slightly struggling to catch up with what that actually means for all of us i would absolutely echo what rebecca has said i think this um the change that we've seen and the move towards flexible working has been has been really really interesting and um, and at, at Microsoft, that's been combined with the sort of emphasis that we place on sort of how manager behaviours at Microsoft, which is around model coach and care. And that's how they should be leading their team. And I think that combined with this new, uh, well, it's like, in fact, it's not new. We've always had flexible working, but I think a, a, a greater acceptance across the industry of flexible working has been been really, really powerful. And I, I think the point that Rebecca made about um, about the fact that that so many of these policies often appear to be aimed at um, women and particularly at mothers is a really good point because um, flexible working is something that benefits people who have any type of caring responsibilities. They're caring for older parents or perhaps or members of their family who have disabilities. Or I've I've worked with with people who really benefited from flexible working because they had you know animals that needed to be cared for at different times of the day. You know anybody who has a sort of full life outside of work can really um, benefit from flexible working, and. I think it's it's really important to sort of understand how a lot of these policies, which may initially have been aimed at, um, at women, actually benefit everybody in the workforce. And I know that the debate around whether whether flexible working sort of 
has always benefited women or benefited all of us because the kind of blurring of lines between home and work becomes more challenging is a really interesting one. And it may be that as a sector, we need to pivot and flex as time goes on to find a kind of uh, medium, the happy medium that works for everybody. Becky, Katie, do you want to add to that or come in on this point? Yeah, I, I think the pandemic highlighted how important it was to have empathetic leadership ideally already in place because if you had empathetic leadership you instantly felt far more comfortable to say to your manager actually this is a problem for me for this reason and it meant workplaces could more quickly understand make amendments adjust accordingly and um, I do think that the changes companies have made during the pandemic some are incredibly positive and will really assist uh, in some of the equality challenges we're talking about today. But I think it's also brought up challenges that you've seen, um, I mean, evidence suggests disproportionately women take on new caring responsibilities, uh, growing issues with work-life balance, growing issues with, with um, job satisfaction and, and culture. So I, I think that highlights that, you know, we were starting to see some progress in a sector that had real inequality problems. And companies will need to redouble their uh, prioritization of inclusivity uh, and diversity. And at Twitter, I think something that has moved the needle is really taking uh, uh, an equality lens to the entirety of the employee lifecycle from recruitment through to compensation, transparency through to promotion. So as an example, our executive team's compensation is in part tied directly towards their contribution to uh, workforce representation targets. And at all aspects of the employee lifecycle, there are similar requirements, expectations in place. So, you know, even before the pandemic, um, I think I mean, estimates vary, but women made up about 30% of the tech workforce. When you look at leadership positions, that drops to about 10%. So before this huge challenge that we're still reckoning with as a society, there was a lot of work to be done. I think now it's it's on companies to really think through how to make sure all the changes that were made during the pandemic speak to um, really improving that situation and don't put at risk the, the very slow progress that's already been made. One of our, our very senior leaders at the company, we know that between the hours of like 5.30 to 7, every day she's with her kids. And we just, we just know that's the thing. She typically logs back on, but I did that a lot. I have two kids as well. And um, we have a unique situation with me where I'm, I'm the breadwinner in our family. And my husband does more of the childcare type of stuff. He does work, but does more of that. But that idea of, of a company saying, you are an extremely important, very senior colleague in the company, but we all know between these hours, you're unavailable is so cool. I can't put it in yet. That's not the best adjective for it, but it's just so respectful of life. and. You know, and that idea of getting that balance right, we all work really long hours. We all collectively worked really long hours during the pandemic. But that flexibility, I think, is something reflecting back to my days in D.C. It's like you have kids, you can see them on the weekends. You know, now it's, you know, it's very much recognizing that, um, you know, it's part of life. And, and we're all better leaders if we get that time with our family in the downtime. So that's something I just wanted to call out. 
And, and Liz, I think that's really interesting because it's a particular challenge when you work for a US company, as we all do, because those hours between 5.30 and 7.30 are when our US colleagues are sort of getting into the working day and wanting to do a lot of the meetings. It's something that I really find um, a challenge when I'm literally being pulled in two different directions. And so I think the fact, Liz, that a senior leader in your organisation is taking that stand is really impressive. I would 100% agree with that, that this is all really impressive. And I think, you know, we've had so much uh, in this discussion, it's been so rich, and it's really highlighted how things are moving in the right direction, how the pandemic has demonstrated that flexible working, it, it does sort of benefit a full range of employees, and it, it should be encouraged. But I think we still we still have a way to go. And I, I mean, obviously, Nimi and, and I at Tech UK, we're, we're really trying to gain insights from your perspectives. But, you know, we have lived experience in the sort of the workplace or, or even in sort of recruitment where we sort of feel that sometimes we're approached in a slightly different way to potentially our male colleague is approached. Really, to bring this back to, to International Women's Day, it kind of great to hear your perspectives on why we need this day and ultimately you know what more needs to be done to ensure these kind of equal opportunities for women where you know at, at each stage of their career and at each stage of their life really so really open to to any perspectives on that becky if you want to want to come in thanks lulu um i think i think particularly in the tech sector the the lack of gender diversity starts at such a young age and this is something that I know that all of us speak to government about the whole time. But it does seem that the sort of a bias against tech of some description starts really, really young for girls. And, and decisions are kind of made about how what careers they're going to pursue and 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 um and what they're interested in, you know, maybe even at primary school. And so I think there's a lot of work for, for companies, for the set whole sector and for government to do to really understand why that happens. And, you know, that's something that happened to me. I, I have worked in the tech sector almost all my life, but my degree is in history and economics. And I did not come from a science background at all. I gave up science really as soon as I could. Um, and it wasn't until I was actually working in the sector that I realised, you know, what a big issue that this this is right across the board. And so I think just just taking action with girls at a very young age to help them to understand um, how exciting and important um, tech skills are and, and how important STEM skills are is really, really vital. Because only when we do that will that really feed through and make a big difference to the pool of women or that companies can recruit from and 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 at the end of the day it, it's a numbers game you know in many ways when when the numbers of women come into tech companies is is really significant then we we can make a real difference i would agree with that um rebecca do you have any perspectives on this or you know why we need international women's day yeah I, just to, on becky's point that i i agree with that i mean like I think we also have to, we have to be careful, and I think I would say this is where we are now in tech companies, is that companies like Meta are overwhelmingly engineering companies, lots of coders and programmers, and, tech, and they are overwhelmingly men, because exactly to Becky's point, if you go follow the line all the way back through STEM subjects, all the way back to maths in primes, girls have an incredibly high dropout rate of those kind of subjects. So it's not that we are deliberately not recruiting female coders, programs, engineers, it's that they're not there to recruit. And then when you end up is you end up with lots of women 
in the surrounding teams like legal policy comms all the other bits around it that there certainly my perspective my, is that that gender diversity they're pretty good if you then walk onto the floor where they're building all the products it's almost entirely men and, and the root cause of that is is more a systemic one than, than a, anything to do directly with our companies and it's it's one where we need to work with government very closely um i think international women's day to go uh, is very important just like we said before, I think it's about visibility. I think it's about having these conversations and seeing different role models from different sectors and hearing their different perspectives. And certainly one of the things that I quite like, and it's been true in this conversation too, is seeing that there's not one way to be, there's not one background, there's not one uh, set, you know, you you don't have to have the power blow dry and the and the the high heel shoes that you know you can be a different person, you can have a different style, different, and that's fine. I think, and that's one thing that's certainly changed. Um, some of these events that I have been to a while ago now, every single woman was kind of the same, and it was actually slightly demoralising. And I, and I think that is a great thing for International Women's Day to do. Um, it is to amplify the fact that now uh, you're not only can you be a female leader and be feel very empowered in that, but you can also have your own uh, personality and approach. There's not an identikit way that you do that. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Katie or, or Liz, do you want to come in with any sort of final comments on, you know, why we need this day and what its value is? I I think we, I think there's a few things. We need to be clear that this isn't just important to equality, this is good for business, that research just consistently shows that diverse teams are more innovative and perform better. And that's across gender, but also age, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation. And with that, I think when we're looking at inclusivity for gender, we have to take an intersectional approach and constantly be thinking about how gender inequality interacts with other types of inequality and discrimination as well. In terms of why International Women's Day is so important, I would take a step back and just look holistically about the role tech is playing globally. That even in 2022, on average, men remain just over 20% more likely to be online than women. And when you look at the world's least developed countries, that rises to 50%. So uh, we're talking today about the technology sector, but I think actually we also need to be thinking about the role tech will play in combating some of these wider structural gender inequalities as well. I think that's fascinating. <clears throat> and I think definitely a whole other podcast could be dedicated to specifically that. Um, Liz, do you want to come in with any final comments? Yeah, um, I just I think um, I, of course, agree with what everyone else has said. And I think the only last thing I would say is that it's important to have International Women's Day to keep the conversation going, reminding us of where we've come from, what the progress we've made is, and where we want to be, ultimately. If you think about, you know, since all of us started our career between 10, 20 years ago, whatever it may be, we didn't have ERGs, we didn't have diversity and inclusion leads or IND leads, we didn't have even this concept of allyship. So we've made progress, we, we didn't have a 30% club, we didn't have all these initiatives to try and, try and push the agenda even further. From my perspective, having an IWD, an International Women's Day, is important so we can measure where we've come from, where we want to go to, but importantly, to continue to push for more diversity. And as Katie says, 
diversity in the round. Of course, women, we're all different types. And as Rebecca said, shapes and sizes and sexuality and nationalities and all of that kind of thing. So we need to look at it in the round. But I, my hope, you know, I, I don't mean to sound cheesy, but I have an 11 and 15 year old, both girls. And I think they do look at things. They, I know they look at things differently. You know, they don't care if someone is, you know, from wherever they're from or whatever their sexuality is. But those kind of things, my hope is for them, is that the progress that they we can make when they're in 10 years time or whatever, looks the same, let me rephrase that. My hope is that when they get to 10 years from now, the things that we've talked about today will just be normal. We, not, no, we won't even have to have a DNI lead because it'll just be normal that boards are 50% women or 60% or 75% women. So I'm excited by what the change we're going to make in the next decade is going to be in the same way that we've made a lot of changes in the past decade. So, um, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, the, this IWD will bring out some really great themes of changes we've made and really be aspirational about what can be made in terms of changes to this um, agenda in the future. This conversation has been so inspiring. I'm so thankful that we've managed to get you powerful women in a room together to talk about allyship and ways in which we can create more opportunities for women and support women and bring men um, into the conversation as well. It's been really great. I just wanna thank you all so much for your insights and for your time. Mm -hmm.